hurricanes, hailstorms, tornadoes, and wildfires. These are just some of the weather hazards that displace families and disrupt lives. Many of us are familiar with the scenes of devastation these hazards cause, and the recovery process for affected communities can take months, even years. In the most extreme circumstances, some may never be whole again. This may prompt many of you to ask, what's being done to reduce the risks associated with these hazards? To answer this question, the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety presents the Disaster Discussions Podcast. Join me, your host, Armand Brody, as I sit down with professionals in the insurance, science, construction, and resiliency industries who will help us explore the intersection of these hazards with the built environment. We'll bring you in-depth conversations with experts from across the country and highlight how science is engineering real-world solutions for home and business owners to create safer, more resilient communities. Join us for these discussions every month. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, go subscribe to the Disaster Discussions podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also invite you to engage with us on social media to ask your questions, share your thoughts, and to learn more about the IBHS mission. From the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, we welcome you to the Disaster Discussions podcast, where we explore the intersection of severe weather and the built environment. I'm your host, Armand Brody. Thank you again for joining us, folks. Let me catch you up on the last handful of episodes that we've been able to bring to you on Amazon, Apple, Google, and Spotify. Our most recent episode was a special segment called On the Radar. We spoke with Dr. Ian Jamanko and Sarah Dillingham, our lead research meteorologist and senior meteorologist, respectively. And we just talked, right, like we always do around here at IBHS in the break room and in the office. We talked about what all the craziness has been in the first half of 2023. And we've gotten an excellent response from you folks for that podcast episode. So if you've not watched that one or listened to it, make sure you do that. There are a plet- There's a plethora of ways you can get a hold of us iebhs.org slash disaster discussions podcast, as well as the previous uh, ways I just mentioned. But please grab a hold of that one if you've not done so. For our May episode, we spoke with the insurance commissioner of the state of Alabama, Mark Fowler, as we celebrated 50,000 fortified designations and how important the state of Alabama has been and their commitment to resilience. So check that one out as well. So much good stuff going on in uh, podcast land and in disaster discussions podcast land. So if you've not uh, listened to our episodes, we've got quite a few of them for you to uh, to uh, chew on as you're driving to and from work and doing chores around the house and uh, all of those good things. So please make sure that you continue to support us. We believe in the work that we are doing and you are helping our work spread across the world. So thank you all for your support of the Disaster Discussions podcast. Well, one of the pieces of the mission of IBHS is to uh, prevent avoidable loss. And uh, what I love about this podcast is we get to come at it from so many different angles. And today is a very special episode because we get the opportunity to look at disasters from an economic standpoint. And to help us do that, we bring in Dr. Kevin Simmons from the Department of Economics of Austin College in Texas, an accomplished uh, author and scholar, 
and uh, educator, and, and Kevin comes to us uh, to give us maybe a bit of a different viewpoint on all this talk about natural hazards and the work that we do. He's known us for so many years. We're going to talk about that as well. Kevin, I want to welcome you to the Disaster Discussions podcast. Well, thank you. It's a privilege to be here, Armand. It's a privilege to have you. And uh, you've got an interesting journey. We'll get into that a little bit uh, as well here as we get going. But it's a privilege to have you with us on the Disaster Discussions podcast. So if you don't mind, let's jump right into it. Okay. So um, if you would, just sort of give us a summary of your journey, so, or, sir. Well, uh, academia is a second career uh, for me. I worked for uh, 17 years in the corporate world, most of that time uh, working for the largest electric utility provider in the state of Texas, uh, Texas Utilities. I was in uh, research groups uh, there at TXU. And uh, along the uh, you know, early 1990s, uh, we had a, um, a, uh, a large nuclear plant that we had been uh, building finally came online and, and having to put that into rate base put some financial pressure on the firm. So they started, uh, they started doing some downsizings and stuff that firms do. And in the process of that, I began to realize that maybe I, this wasn't going to be the career I thought it was going to be. So I thought uh, to look into uh, what else I may want to do. Now, my mother was a professor. I was raised around colleges. And I was doing research at TXU, already had my master's. So I thought maybe, uh, maybe I'd like to go into academia. Uh, that means you need a PhD. So I, uh, I uh, went ahead and started taking some other classes. And then when the opportunity presented itself, uh, I went ahead and left TXU and we moved out to Lubbock where I got my doctorate at Texas Tech uh, University. Now, I was in economics, but while I was there, I met the folks at the Wind Engineering Institute, which is headed up by Kishore Mehta. And they were looking for an economist to work on a National Science Foundation project. And so I volunteered and uh, began working with them. It ended up being my dissertation and got several publications out of it. I honestly thought that was the last time I was going to touch that stuff. <laughs> I worked so long in the energy field, I thought if I have a research agenda, it'll be with my corporate background, it'll be in energy. But my first job was in Oklahoma City, and I arrived there in 1999, right after the May 3rd tornado, went through the Oklahoma City metropolitan area. And there is a very large NOAA uh, facility in Norman uh, that is uh, very active. It's now called the National Weather Center. But uh, I found myself as the only economist in the state of Oklahoma that had ever done anything on natural hazards. I introduced myself to the folks at NOAA, and after that, I just started working in this field and have been so busy, I haven't even had the time to think about uh, something else. So that's how I got into doing uh, natural hazards work. And it's been, frankly, a wonderful uh, research agenda. The people that are involved in this research from all areas, meteorologists, wind engineers, uh, insurance folks, I've become friends with all of them and uh, con consider myself very fortunate to be able to be a part of that community. You are very familiar with IBHS and your time 
uh, knowing IBHS uh, goes back quite a ways. Share that with our audience, if you would, please. It does. I was at the Hazards Conference that the University of Colorado does every year. I think this was in 98. Pretty sure it was in the summer of 98. And I was making a presentation of my dissertation topic uh, that I'd been working on. And there were people from IBHS there. There were also people from the research arena at State Farm uh, that were there. And after my presentation, they come, came up and introduced themselves to me. I was invited to go out and uh, meet the folks in Bloomington, Illinois, where State Farm had their research facilities. I was also invited to do some presentations at y'all's annual meeting uh, very soon after that. In fact, I made presentations at y'all's annual meetings for several years in a row uh, at first. So it's been, it's been 25 years that I've known the folks at IBHS and I've worked with you guys. You've even funded some of the work that we did. So uh, we've done some projects with you, uh, particularly when Tim was, when Tim Reinhold was there. Uh, so yeah, I've known you guys a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have friends and enduring friends at that. Uh, and uh, we're certainly appreciative of uh, the relationship that we've been able to share uh, over the past two plus decades. Uh, Kevin, let's dive in here. Um, okay. you, you know this very well. Since 1980, we've had uh, well over a trillion dollars in damage from wind storms and, and hail in the United States. And uh, around 85 percent of that has occurred within the last 25 to 30 years from your vantage point and with your expertise and your, giving your knowledge, how do we explain that? Well, the most, most of that damage that has been particularly the recent damage has been along the coast. And we have seen a large migration of people who want to live on the coast. And you can't blame them for that. I mean, you know, it's, it's wonderful. And uh, it, it, it can be paradise. But they, there's a lot of risk there. And the, some, some of the structures that have been built uh, were just not able to withstand the, uh, the hurricane winds that would come along. And uh, so, so you would have just some devastating storms. Now, we had some, some series of really devastating storms that came through, particularly uh, that hit Florida. The, the state of Florida, uh, in 2004, 2005, had seven major landfalling hurricanes uh, hit. Of course, in 2005, we had a Hurricane Katrina that affected um, uh, New Orleans so badly that we all, all know about. And then the Texas coast got hit by so many uh, in more recent years. And then we had Hurricane Maria. I mean, it just, it just goes on and on and on. And when you put vulnerable structures in the path or in an area that's risk to the path of a violent uh, storm, you're gonna have bad things happen. And so um, that is the main driver of that. And of course, as you guys well know, the solution, uh, you either tell people you can't live there or you tell people uh, that you, if you're going to live there, we need to build better structures, structures that are going to survive. Uh, windstorms as as they come along. So that's the main driver of it. Of course, there's been other uh, other things happening. Uh, my friend at uh, uh, Northern Illinois University uh, had a paper that uh, he and his, his co-author at Villanova had a paper out 
called the expanding bullseye. And he's talking about tornadoes now. And what he meant by that was that in these urban areas like Oklahoma City, like Dallas-Fort Worth, which are vulnerable to uh, tornadoes, the metropolitan areas are just growing and growing and growing. And the bullseye for the uh, tornadoes, the targets that the, the tornado can hit, have just gotten larger and larger and larger. Um, where I live in, Dallas, in just north of the Dallas-Fort Worth area, you've got about 100 miles from north to south that is urban or suburban area. So a tornado that comes through North Texas, how is it going to miss? It's got so many uh, potential uh, areas to hit. And uh, fortunately, we haven't had, uh, you know, an EF5 that would go through downtown Dallas or right down I-30. But we've had some pretty big ones go close to there. And uh, so it is, uh, uh, we're just putting a lot of, of, infrastructure in risky areas and that's going to create big losses yeah i remember i'm thinking back uh, to what ian said during our last episode uh, of this podcast and he said and, and i'd love for you to follow up on this kevin he said we've got too much stuff in the way mm, yeah and it, it's hard to miss if there's so much, so many houses, so much stuff, to use Ian's word, it's hard to miss if there's so much stuff in the way, in the path. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ian's exactly right. And, um, and it even compounds itself uh, with the way we are designing developments. For instance, where I live here in North Texas, uh, if you look at home, subdivisions that were built in the 60s and the 70s, they're sitting on, on fairly large lots. And so the space between the houses is pretty good space, you know, between the houses. Now, if you look at a subdivision that's being built right now, they've just got these houses crammed right on top of each other. So even if you have a small tornado that comes through and it hits the first house on the street, that is debris that's going to now be missiles heading toward the next house, which may only be 10 feet away. And so it is, Ian's right, we put too much stuff in the way, but the way we're designing these uh, developments exacerbates that problem because we're just cramming these houses uh, right on top of each other. And uh, unless those houses were built to withstand uh, windstorms like that, then you're gonna have, you're gonna have the damage that, uh, that you guys are, are alluding to. Let me ask you about this. Um, the issue of building cults, it's, it's mm. something we talk about all the time here at IBHS. Uh, but from your viewpoint, why are statewide building codes so important, Kevin? Well, they're important because uh, they should be designed to face the risk that is uh, common for that state. Now, the only state that has passed a statewide building code intended to address the wind threat is the state of Florida. There's some history there. They had uh, Hurricane Andrew that came through, did absolutely devastating uh, effects uh, in, um, in the state of Florida. Several insurance companies went, uh, went bankrupt uh, with what they were doing in Florida. Several other insurance companies have limited 
what they're willing to insure uh, in the state. So you've got a crisis of being able to provide insurance at a reasonable cost. And if people can't live somewhere with reasonable costs, they're not going to move there. So the state of Florida was forced to do something that no other state has done, and that is to put in place a statewide building code that is uh, built to wind engineering uh, standards. It went into effect uh, in, let's see, 2002, and didn't have to wait very long because, remember, I, I mentioned that uh, the hurricane season of 04 and 05, seven landfalling hurricanes coming across. And uh, so we got an opportunity to see what benefit, if any, this new building code would be. And you know what we found was that homes built to the, stand, the, to the new standards, the new building codes, compared to homes built prior to the building codes, suffered 53% less damage uh, than older homes. In addition to that, when you consider the fact that there were fewer claims made on homes built to the new building codes, the overall reduction in damage between homes built to the Florida Code compared to homes that were not built to the new Florida Code is 72%. A 72% overall reduction in damage based upon the statewide uh, building code. Now, the economics of that, if you look at the cost to build a home to the uh, new code versus the reduction in losses across the um, uh, expected lifetime of that home, you're talking about retrieving $6 in, in avoided damage for every $1 you spend on um, uh, beefing up the, uh, uh, the structure. So it, it's an incredibly good payoff. Uh, so building codes are very, very important. Um, now, not every state faces the risk that Florida does, but I had a, I had a paper I did with uh, your, y'all have a, a, a sister organization in Toronto called the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction. Uh, Paul Kovacs is the head of that group. And Paul and I did a study that we were trying to examine what other states would be good candidates for a statewide building code. And we came across three. They're not going to be surprises to anybody. The states of Oklahoma, Alabama, and Mississippi all had very good uh, benefit-to-cost ratios if they were to adopt a similar uh, building code as the state of Oklahoma. Now, of course, as you know, the state of, of Oklahoma does not have a statewide building code, but they do have one city, the city of Moore, that has adopted a municipal building code that was similar uh, to what they had in Florida. And they've had great results uh, from that. The only surprise is that other cities in the state of Oklahoma did not follow suit or that the state didn't follow suit uh, as, uh, as Florida did. We're going to come back to more uh, as okay. time allows uh, shortly. But I want to sort of come back just a little bit, Kevin, and I want to look a little bit more broadly at your perspective in general. You mentioned Hurricane Andrew. When a storm like that threatens, as an economist, as a professor, what things do you start to think about right away? So give our audience a sense of how your mind starts to work when a Katrina or an Ian or, or you, an Andrew is on the way. Right. Well, first of all, I think you have to uh, 
be concerned about any potential loss of life. That's got to be top of mind uh, anytime these storms uh, start approaching. And I think that FEMA has and, and the, the local authorities in the most recent uh, batch of storms do a remarkable job in trying to evacuate people and stuff like that. Obviously, in tornadoes, you don't have the opportunity to do that because you don't have time to evacuate and things like that. But once you get past that concern about uh, loss of life, then you start wondering what is in the path of this event. As Ian said, what is the stuff that is in the path of of this storm that is headed toward Florida or headed toward Dallas or whatever. If it, if, and you hope, and I, I, I live where we have tornadoes. So you hope that the tornado is going to go in an area that is, you know, sparsely populated, not a lot of stuff to hit targets, but boy, we had a tornado. I think it was in 2018 went through North Dallas where I grew up. And North Dallas is a densely populated area. So anytime you have a storm going through a densely populated area, the chances of high uh, loss and the possibility of uh, people getting hurt or killed just goes up exponentially. So your, your first concern is, is this going to hit, is this going to be a, a lethal storm? Secondly, is it going to hit populated uh, areas? Because if it does, you can just about guarantee that we're going to have billion-dollar uh, losses, uh, which aren't even unusual anymore. Uh, I mean, that, that was the, the thing about the, the May 3rd tornado. I think it was the first billion-dollar event. Now it's hard not to have an event that reaches, you know, those numbers. So we're almost inured uh, to, the, to the high dollar numbers. Uh, good points, all of those. Um, Let's talk about this because I'm always, I'm always curious ab about this aspect of uh, of your work and our work here um, at IBHS. How do we communicate the importance of, of mitigation, given the fact that let's look at it from your perspective? Because right, your 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 background, your knowledge is the economics of it all. Let me back up though before I even go that far. When you have these conversations with the, the various groups of people that you speak to on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis, it's my observation that as soon as the numbers come out, we start hearing and seeing uh, millions and billions, there's almost this discomfort. From your vantage point, how do we make those conversations, how do we make sure those conversations are being had and being had in a way that's going to lead to some understanding and maybe uh, even more of an acceptance of what the science and the data of, of what those things are telling us. Yeah, I mean, that's not an economic question so much as it is a social science question about how people receive and process uh, negative information. Um, you know, we, we see an event happen it gets our attention, but our attention, unless it personally affected us, hit my house, hit my parents' house, something like that, the, the, the heightened attention doesn't last very long. And we go back to a state where 
since the probability of that tornado hitting my particular house is so small, I tend to just ignore it. I set the probability of it happening to me at zero. Now, it's a little harder to do that on the coast because when a hurricane comes through, it takes a wide swath. And so you do see people that live in the coastal areas give different probability assessments to being directly affected by a hurricane than people living in North Texas or Oklahoma do uh, to a, a tornado. Um, but, you know, we, we, just tend to, we, we just tend to block it out and just say, you know, that, that's not going to happen to me. That's not going to happen to me. And so when you tell yourself that enough, it takes a really tragic event to boost you out of that inertia uh, to realize that, you know, maybe we need to do something, you know, here, whether as a community or as an individual. So I think that would be my, my take on it is people just don't like to think about, you know, scary things, bad things, even when it just happened. Yeah, we're paying attention to it, but as soon as cameras leave, as soon as things start, you know, settling down, um, we, we go back to that state where we underestimate the likelihood that I or someone I know or care about is going to be affected by these things. Yeah, you're right. You're right about that. Um, economically speaking, and I know you've done extensive research on this. How do you know? What do you look for uh, to tell you that a community or a state is moving in the right direction relative to resilience? What does that look like? Well, it's either one of two things. You've either got a community that has made a decision as, as the state of Florida did and as the um, as the city of Moore did that have taken public policy measures, building codes. Uh, to enhance uh, their their resilience. Um, there's also things communities can do that don't necessarily fall within building codes. And you know, the um, Insurance Services Office has their BSAGs ratings. And we did a study looking at the differences in the average ratings. And that's the building grade enforcement. Oh, God, now, now I'm going to... Standards, uh, God, I, I, I've gone brain dead. It, you know, the white hair will tell you the age is <laughs> age, getting old sucks. Um, but you're familiar with the BSEGS ratings are, and, and I think your audience are too. It, it's the rating given to a community on their overall resilience. And the higher mm -hmm. the rating or the better, actually the lower the numbers are in, in BSEGS, uh, they are considered a more resilient community. And uh, therefore, they may, they may qualify for different underwriting uh, criteria. Um, what we did find, and this is a little, uh, we, did a, we did a study on that in Florida. And what we did find was that communities with the better BSAGS ratings tended to be urban. They tended to be wealthier. They tended to have a younger, more well-educated population. 
So you've got all of those ingredients there of people who are not only aware, but are willing maybe to dig a little bit deeper. They have the resources with their affluence to be able to do some things. But then, of course, the sad part of that is that the corollary is that, you know, less affluent, poorer communities are almost by default the most vulnerable. And then they would tend to have... Uh, Lower. So, so there's an awful lot of social science stuff that goes into your question that is well beyond just the economics right. of it. Uh, economics certainly plays a part, but um, but you know that's the kinds of things that we've looked at uh, that would suggest that. And what other things do I look for? I, of course, what you guys have going in Alabama with with your Fortify program that's a really interesting one. Uh, because, and, and, and there, I'm not as familiar, so you're going to have to correct me if I, if I misspeak on this, Armand, but there would have to have been a receptive group of builders and stakeholders that really want to, uh, push, you know, that type of resilience on a voluntary basis, as opposed to doing it public policy, uh, wise. And uh, I think that, that you guys have had some really good success there. I wish we could replicate that mm-hmm. uh, in, other, in other areas. I haven't studied it, but, uh, but that may be a good case study. Why was it so accepted in Alabama? Uh, why have they had the success? That may give you some clues uh, to the kinds of things that we're looking for. Yeah, I'm thinking about the conversation I had with Commissioner Fowler and just his remarks about how chaotic the insurance market was and mm-hmm. and the commissioner then the insurance commissioner at the time Jim Ridling was just so so much of a believer in there's something has to be done there has to be some science there has to be some research there has to be some information to bring some calm to the chaos and that was really a big part of how the fortified program developed such a, a, a stronghold in the state of Alabama, but you're right. It does take people to just believe that mm-hmm. there's something that has to be done and, and be willing to put themselves out there to say, we've got to be better for our citizens. We've got to be better for, for resilience sake. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or, or it could take, you know, like what happened in the state of Florida, the hurricane Andrew was such a big event, right? You couldn't ignore it. You couldn't ignore it, and you couldn't just let time heal that. It it was, at the time, the largest storm. It's been eclipsed since then, but at the time, it was the largest uh, uh, storm that we had had, and it couldn't be ignored. Uh, same thing happened in Moore. I know you wanted to talk about Moore a little bit later, so I'll hold off on that, but they had a let's similar go, Let's trigger. go now. We can go now. Okay. They had a similar trigger in Moore. You know, the tornado that went through Moore, it was an EF5 tornado, a uh, terrible tornado going through a densely populated suburb of Oklahoma City. And unfortunately, it hit two schools a mile apart from each other while the kids were there. Hit Briarwood Elementary and it hit uh, Plaza Towers Elementary. At one of those schools, seven kids perished. And that type of tragedy with the raw emotions that go with it, I believe was the catalyst that told the city leaders in the city of Moore, we got to do something. 
we got to do something. And, of course, their response was to enact the first municipal building code that was for wind resilience. And uh, they did so with the cooperation of the local home builders. And as far as our research shows, they have paid no negative price for that. And when I say no negative price, the concern that city leaders and other communities have anytime you're, you're being pressured to, uh, you know, have a stricter code is they will say, well, you know, if we do that and our neighboring cities don't do it, the cost of our houses are going to be higher and their houses are going to be lower and the builders and the customers are all going to move to that other city. Well, what we found in, in Mora was that did not happen. We did a study after the enactment of their code. We waited about a year, two years uh, to have some houses be sold. And we based it on three metrics. We based it on price. We based it on sales and building permits. And we compared it to their neighbor, Norman, just to the south, which did not have an enhanced code. And what we found was that there was no statistical difference in the uh, changes in price over that period between Norman and Moore, the changes in sales between Norman and Moore, and the changes in building permits between Norman and Moore. So the fear that city leaders have is not borne out by the research. Uh, in fact, it may be argued that uh, Oklahoma City is, is such a, a known area for high propensity of tornadoes that it may be a benefit that, yeah, I want a house built to these standards uh, because if I'm going to move to central Oklahoma, I want to have something that's as safe as possible. <clears throat> Let's keep driving down this street a bit. Um, okay. I'd love for you, Kevin, to sort of speak more broadly, uh, given the many studies and all the research you've done. What is the value of mitigation for home buyers? Let's I'll put myself in the shoes of John or Mary getting ready to buy a home and maybe in one of these states that is prone to a hurricane or a tornado. Uh, what is the data showing us about the value of mitigation for little John or little Mary? Well, of course, that, that question can be answered two ways. Uh, it can be answered on a macro or community level uh, basis, but it can also be answered on a micro or individual level basis. So let's start with the individual. Um, our studies have shown that mitigation adds value to a home in much the same way as renovating a bathroom would do. And that, that can be, we've examined it from hurricane mitigation features on Galveston Island, uh, the hurricane, um, uh, the, the, the shutters, hurricane shutters that people have on their windows and doors. Uh, what we found in Galveston was that if you had hurricane shutters on your house, you, the value of your house went up about 5%. There was a study that was done in Alabama on Fortified. I didn't do this study. It was done at the University of Alabama. But this study looked at the value of a fortified home versus a non-fortified home, and the increase in sales price was 7%. That if you had a fortified home in Alabama, you, you could expect a 7% increase in the value of the homes. A group from Florida State did a study in South Florida 
uh, after uh, Hurricane Andrew because there are three counties in South Florida that already had a building code that was beyond the state building code, and they enhanced it even more after Hurricane Andrew. And these guys did a study that uh, homes that were built after the new building codes were put into place. Now, this is before Florida did the statewide code. These three counties got it done real fast. Uh, they found the same thing, that if you bought a house with uh, be the, the better building codes, the value of your house went up. We did a study in Oklahoma looking at storm shelters, uh, yeah, uh, uh, tornado shelters. And what we found was, uh, and the motivation for this, FEMA had a program after the May 3rd, 99 tornado to provide grants to people to put in storm shelters in Oklahoma. So we used that to uh, see a few years later, look at resale data, and we found that storm shelters increased the value of your home by about 3%. Now that's all just raw economics. There's also the peace of mind, and that has an economic benefit to it, that if I have a shelter in my house, or if I have a structure that's built uh, with resilient uh, features, my stress and concern and anxiety about an impending storm is going to be lessened, and there, there is some peace of mind that comes from that. Now, how do you value peace of mind? Well, that's hard, but you can't say it's zero. It's, it's, it's like asking somebody, a storm is a tornado is coming for your community. What would you be willing to pay to be able to have a tornado shelter uh, to use in that moment? That gives you some sense of the economic value. I wouldn't try to put a number on that for analysis, but it's not, it's not zero. Uh, so there are all kinds of things from the individual. Now, from the community, um, look at the BSEGS ratings again. If your community is more resilient, your ratings on that, on that program are going to improve. If your ratings on that improve, the underwriting uh, criteria for your community is going to change and get better, which over time will affect the uh, rates that the people that live in your town pay on insurance. So it makes an, a less expensive uh, place to live over time once that's absorbed into, uh, into the underwriting uh, system. And I'll say one other thing, and this has been very recent. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, there were insurance companies that began making movements that they are going to begin limiting their exposure in California. Now, you've got Florida, which since Hurricane Andrew, you've had fewer insurance companies wanting to uh, underwrite properties, particularly on the coast uh, in the state of Florida. Now we're starting to see that in other areas. As areas become less resilient, and as we as a society have to deal with how climate change is affecting this, how population movement to uh, vulnerable areas is affecting this. It's going to get more and more and more expensive, which means the insurance industry is either going to have to drastically raise their rates, making it exorbitantly expensive to live in some places, or say, as they're beginning to do, this, this is getting to be a risk we can't insure. And so I think there's, there's benefits from, the, from the, the personal, the micro, but then there's those more macro benefits that if we don't get this right, 
we may be creating communities that people can either no longer afford to live in because it's just too expensive or you can't get insurance to, uh, to build a home in that area or uh, places are just going to be uh, to the point that we can't recover. So th that's the way I would, I would think about it, Armand. <clears throat> I just want to, re I want to reiterate what you just said, and I'd love for you to just kind of give it to me again. Okay. Because I want our audience to really understand <clears throat> this, because you just gave us quite a bit there a moment ago. That not just from a peace of mind standpoint, but we have data, we have evidence that shows us that a commitment to resilience is economically beneficial for everyone involved. Am I right, right on that? Yes. yes. Put some meat on that bone. I want to make sure that that point comes through loud and clear, Kevin. Well, you, you need look no further than the state of Florida. Again, they had the perfect natural experiment. 2004, 2005, seven landfall hurricanes struck the state of Florida. Look at the difference in the damage profile for homes that were built to the Florida Building Code versus the ones that were not. And I, I know I gave you these statistics earlier, but they're worth repeating. If you include the reduction in claims filed and you include the difference in the damage profiles between uh, homes built to the uh, Florida Building Code versus those who are not. Overall, in those two years, we saw a reduction of 72% of the cost, uh, of the damage from, uh, those, from those hurricanes. So a community that has made a commitment to build in a resilient fashion is gonna be able to recover faster. And we didn't include these items in here. They're going to be able to recover faster, which means their economy is not going to take the hit that uh, economies will take. You know, after Hurricane Katrina, there were the estimates that I saw about 250,000 people left New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. That was an economic migration, the largest that we've seen in many, many, many decades. There's an economic cost to that. Mm -hmm. It took the city years to recover from a Hurricane Katrina. I just got back from Puerto Rico where I was in contact with people who live in Puerto Rico and hearing the stories, I don't have any data on this, so I have nothing but anecdotes, but to hear the stories that they would tell me that after Hurricane Maria struck Puerto Rico, the devastation it put on that island, uh, that they were without power for, for many months. Uh, so many of the businesses were hit. People were out of work. Many people left Puerto Rico. There was another migration out of Puerto Rico uh, trying to recover or trying to find something better than what the living conditions were there. So there's just a whole uh, list of things from the personal all the way up to macroeconomic uh, kinds of considerations that if, if, the, if the climate scientists predictions are true, and I'm not a climate scientist, but I know these guys and I trust these guys. If their assessments are true, we can only look to the future that the risks are gonna go up. And if those risks go up and we're prepared, maybe we can 
you know, get through those times a little bit easier. If we're not prepared, it, it's, it's going to be tragic. It's just going to be tragic to see. You make such a good point um, and on so many different levels because when we hear about hurricanes, when we hear about storms, when tornadoes, our minds, and they should, our minds go straight to how many lives were lost, right? Mm-hmm. You watch you watch a telecast, you watch a broadcast, and the, the broadcast may even start with the number of lives that were lost because of a severe convective storm, because of a hurricane, whatever the case may be. But as you mentioned, there are so many more things at play. Economically speaking, communities, as you talked about with New Orleans, it can take so many years to get back to even a semblance of a sense of normalcy there mm-hmm. from a community and from an economic standpoint. And and you laid that out so beautifully. And I think it's so important that we all understand that, especially for those of us who are listening to this podcast on a regular basis. Uh, it, to sum it all up, Kevin, uh, it pays to be resilient. It of pays course. to commit. It yeah. pays to commit to resilience. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you pay me now or you pay me later. And um, um, the, uh, the, the story is there. We know how to protect properties from most hazards. I mean, you know, we, we can't protect, protect every property from every hazard. But the wind engineers have done a pretty good job really good job of designing ways to make a house resilient from most of the things that most of the storms that would hit it. My job was to show that that effort is cost effective. And it is. We've got a story. Getting people to address that and to embrace that story, I think that's the next challenge. How do we communicate this in such a way that it it gets into the zeitgeist? It, it breaks through so that people uh, can, can get that. And, you know, it, it's not really that much different than uh, in the 1960s. My, I told you my mom was a college professor. Kinesiology and health, those were all her fields. So as her kids growing up, we were inundated with the messages from the American Cancer Society about the dangers of smoking. Mm -hmm. People ignored that, ignored it, ignored it until they didn't. And eventually that message broke through and we had a societal change that is very different than societal attitudes about those things in the 50s and the 60s. I think the same thing can happen. I think that you could have um, people embrace this message. The tragedy is, more than likely, really bad things are going to have to happen, regrettably, before it reaches the point that people will uh, break through. Um, I, I, when I was teaching my classes, I would... I, my, my, my mitigation example that the kids love is to talk about the story of the three little pigs. And, you know, we're going to keep building our houses out of straw until we realize that the wolf 
is right there ready to tear us apart. And then it occurs to us that uh, maybe we need, maybe the brother that did the house out of bricks wasn't, wasn't such a dumb brother after all. <laughs> Economics and a literature lesson from... <laughs> <laughs> From, uh, from from Kevin Simmons. Kevin, we're just about out of time. I, okay. I, I have so many more things I want to talk to you about. But um, what other thoughts do you have? I, I just want to hear you talk and, and, and offer your uh, offer some insights here on, on this conversation. Um, I, I, I don't really know if I have any insights per se. Um, it's just... I've watched this. Like I said, I've been involved in this research agenda for 25 years. There's been a lot of really bad storms in 25 years. And each one of them is a tragedy. And not all of the damage could be prevented. Not all of the deaths could have been prevented. But significant amounts of it could have been. Significant amounts of the damage could have been prevented significant amounts of the injuries and fatalities uh, could have been prevented and it just it just breaks your heart i mean um it's it just you know I, i'll just give you an anecdote um we were we were at my son's house he lives in oklahoma city and we were there after the El Reno tornado. We were in, in Oklahoma City with Drew when the El Reno tornado went through. That was a horrible tornado. It was a mile wide, EF5. Fortunately, it was out in the country, but it did cross Interstate 40. And, uh, you know, th th there were fatalities, there was damage. But my wife, <laughs> after this tornado, my wife just almost got in our son's face and told him, you're getting a storm shelter and uh, and really impressed that on him. Now, the downside was everybody in Oklahoma City had the same idea. The waiting list for a storm shelter in Oklahoma City after El Reno was 18 months. But uh, but it, it 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 made an impact. And, you know, it was uh, something that got very personal for our family. Uh, so. Um, it's just, like I say, it's just heartbreaking to see the damage, to see the uh, fatalities. We can do better. We can do better. We could, we could have public policy that's better. We could have public policy. And public policy doesn't have to be building codes. You could go the market route and say, let's give you tax incentives. Let's give you, uh, and Oklahoma has tried several of these. And let's do something so that people are nudged into doing the right thing as opposed to being pushed into doing the right thing. Now, building codes is probably the most effective because once they're in place, every house from that point on, you know, is going to be built to these, or you, you hope, is built to these, uh, to these standards. But um, I, I think that's just, you know, this is, this is a tragedy that is largely preventable. And uh, we can we can we can do better. A disaster is when you have a natural event that affects people that were not properly prepared or people at the wrong place. Uh, to call it a natural disaster takes away the idea that we as humans did have a role 
in determining whether or not this event was going to be, or, or the size of the the size of the damage, the size of the fatalities. We have a say so in that, but we need to say it before the disaster, uh, before the event occurs. Exactly right. And everything you just said, Kevin, sums up why we come to work every day. Mm -hmm. It's it, like. It's a part of our IBHS mission, preventing yep. avoidable loss, preventing avoidable suffering. You, you use the word a few times there, prevent, prevent, prevent. We talk all the time here at IBHS about the fact that we are not powerless. And so everything you just said, your summary just a moment ago, really encapsulates our mission statement. And it's such a pleasure to have someone with your perspective uh, to provide uh, that economic viewpoint and really that viewpoint is harmonious with the research and the science that we do here at the research center inside the test chamber and even the work that is done out in the field. So I can tell you with 100 uh, percent confidence and gratitude that it has been a complete joy, Kevin Simmons, to have you on the Disaster Discussions podcast here today. Well, thank you. And I, I've enjoyed talking to you guys, too, Armand. Like I said, you guys are longtime friends. So it is it is. Uh, it is quite an honor to be able to, to, to visit with you today. And I hope, I hope, Kevin, that uh, time will allow you to join us again uh, in the uh, relatively near future. That, that sounds good to me. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Disaster Discussions podcast, an IBHS production. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or watch the podcast on our website at ibhs.org slash disaster discussions podcast and the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety YouTube channel. Connect with us on our social media pages on Twitter at Disaster Safety, Facebook at facebook.com slash disaster safety and on Instagram at ibhs underscore org. For more great content from IBHS, including ongoing research efforts happening at our facility, episodes of our podcast, and more, visit IBHS.org.